Welcome. I think it's a, I think it's a slowly trickling in crowd, maybe late by baseball game watchers, and um, Dr. Levin is thumbs up. Red Sox. Red Sox won, and so it's going to be, I think, a, a, a long couple of weeks of late, late, late night baseball. So enjoy. It is, um, it is October 24th, uh, 2018. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. Uh, we have uh, one more in October next week um, with neonatal care as well as, uh, I think, epigenetics. So uh, the, the, the speaker is posted. But today's also a special day. It's the 24th. I don't know if it's annual, but the 24th, I think, annual uh, DHMC Pediatric Ethics Conference, um, which is co-hosted by Chad and the Dartmouth um, Ethics uh, Committee. We, I, I usually look up in that corner and see... Dr. Jim Bernat there to thank, but he is not with us this morning. Thank Dr. Hillary Ryder. But we will thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ryder, as chair of the Ethics Committee. And, um, and uh, Tim Leahy has been on that group in the past as well, but has moved on to the University of Vermont. So I have the pleasure today of introducing one of our own. We have a nice cohort, but one of our own recently minted, officially blessed bioethicist, Kathy Shubkin, after completing her certificate last, uh, last summer to introduce our, our visiting speaker, Kathy. All right, so it, again, just to echo what Keith said, I really appreciate the support from the Clinical Ethics Committee here, Dr. Hillary Ryder, um, and as, long, as well as Dr. Sonu Betty, who is the chair of the Dartmouth Ethics Institute over the college, who helped co-sponsor this annual event. So thank you to both of them. And it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Neka Siedersturm, who comes to us from the University of Minnesota from the Children's Hospital. Um, she matriculated to George Washington University in 1997, where she completed her Bachelor's of Arts in Philosophy and a secondary field of study in public health. She moved on to get multiple other degrees, as you can see from there, including degrees in a master's degree in philosophy with a concentration in ethics at Howard University, and then a PhD from Howard with her doctorate in sociology with a concentration in medical sociology and race, class, gender inequalities with a secondary field of concentration in global health management. She has been at MedStar for a number of years before the folks at Children's in Minnesota recruited her up, I learned two years ago, um, to become uh, the, I'm going to get her title wrong, I apologize, the director, director of the clinical ethics department at Children's uh, at Minnesota. Um, and she is, uh, she is an affiliate faculty for the University of Minnesota Center for Bioethics. I also learned last night that she does have a Dartmouth connection because the big green goes deep, and so her brother was a soccer player here at Dartmouth a number of years ago. But this is the first time she's been up to New England and to our Dartmouth campus, so please give her a warm welcome. Thank you very much. mic on because I do like to move around a lot. Um, so if my hair gets in the way and starts hitting it, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll change it. But for right now, this is, this is what we've got. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Thank you. Uh, and I know that uh, Tim Leahy is now in Vermont. Yeah, he left us. <laughs> he still 
<laughs> but um, also a shout out to the University, Tim. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, and thank you, Kathy, for the introduction. Yes, I am a little bit of an overachiever. Um, it, it's just, I blame my mother. So, you know, it, it's part of the usual. If you, if you grow up, you realize your mother does things to you that you didn't expect. <laughs> so this was one of them. Uh, and I, I, I have nothing to disclose, but I've <clears throat> recently started saying at talks that my aspiration is to one day have something to disclose. Um, and, but, and I was, it was informed last night that I should probably disclose that I, I'm the mom that Pinterest was made for. Because uh, I, I, I tend to have a, a little bit, my overachieving goes a little bit uh, insane at my kids' birthday parties. I have a, a, a son that's about to be three, he's a Halloween baby, and pregnant with my second, who is a daughter, and um, we're having this obscenely large Black Panther themed party coming up. And when I mean obscene, it's we're talking about 200 guests obscene. <laughs> so that that's me. A little insight on who I am. That's, that's me. Uh, so again, one day I I want to have something on this screen, but as an ethicist, it's really hard to to stomach that at the same time, even though it sounds like a good plan. All right, so um, in talking with Tim about what would sound like a good idea for you guys for Grand Rounds and sort of knowing my history, initially it was kind of hysterical because he sent me an email saying, we'd love for you to come talk about like transgender ethics issues. And I'm like, cool. I mean, they've never really talked about that, but if that's what you want, fine. And so I wrote him back and I'm like, that's a good idea. Do you have some ideas that something happened? Was there a case or something? He was like, my bad, cut and paste, <laughs> cut and paste email. Uh, <laughs> so he's like, well, actually, what, what we would like is something about quality in ethics. And I was like, ah, more my speed. I get it. No, that makes more sense. Um, and I said, sure, that, that, that's sort of my new bag that I, I like to try and talk about. I've started delving into this quality world and how ethics relates to the quality world um, last year, uh, mostly started switching over into like this quality space a little last year. So um, this gave me an opportunity to kind of coalesce some of my thoughts specifically around quality in pediatrics because my training has mostly been adult medicine. Uh, the hospital that I was at in MedStar for 17 years almost was uh, mostly adults. We had a huge neonatology department and we did a lot of adolescent meds, but None of that, like, in between the NICU and adolescence. So um, when children's called me up, the reason, besides the fact that they wanted to change their model, what they also knew is that I had married a Minnesotan, and Minnesotans don't like being outside of Minnesota. So that was, that was a hook to get me to come because they knew if I told my husband, it would be like a yes, we're moving to Minnesota, which you, exactly would happen when I, when I said it. So um, since then, I've been very interested a little bit into the quality world, and I think part of it is because there's not a lot of ethics talks about quality and what that means. So um, when Tim asked me, I was like, absolutely, let's do that. So quality, as we all know it, tends to bring up images of dashboards and metrics and regulations and things like that. But it's always good to kind of understand why and where this comes from. So how many of you have read this report? Fair amount. Good. Yeah, so 1999 was the epic year that Two Areas Human came out. Uh, and this was the report that the Institute of Medicine put together that highlighted how terrible we are in medicine. It was the, it was the dark stain on the field. 
It showed that we kill tens of thousands was the actual terminology that was used um, in medicine due to medical errors that are preventable errors, which is the key, preventable medical errors, every year. And that cascaded and started a whole plethora of things, right? Everybody was really stressed out. What's going on with our system? How is it flawed? How is this happening? We're the healthcare providers. We're the people who are supposed to save lives. And yet we are the cause for a multitude of deaths. So this began the world of quality as we know it in these days. But um, I don't know if you have seen recently in 2007, there was my watch is talking. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I have no idea why it started talking. And, and I also talk with my hands, that's the other problem. It's probably picking up something, so I'll just put it down. Just, it doesn't start talking again. But in 2007, U.S. News and World Report came up with uh, an, another humdinger that said that uh, medicine is still the third leading cause of death. So medical practices, preventable medical errors, is the third leading cause of death in the United States. I think it was upwards of 250,000 deaths a year are due to preventable medical errors. So even though in 99 this came out, we have moved forward a couple of years and we're still not quite there. I mean, we're third behind cancer and heart disease, which is, as we know, it usually the, the top uh, causes of death. But we have a problem that we need to work through. How many have seen this one? Lesser hands, okay. So um, post the To Air is Human report came out this crossing, crossing the Quality Chasm, and this came out in 2001. And what this did was the IOM said, you know, okay, so we, we highlighted the fact that we've got these issues. Now let's think about what we actually want healthcare to be. And let's give people a little bit of a roadmap on the, the topics that we think are the most important when someone says, I need to get care, what does that look like? And so they decided that there were six big buckets that care should be. It should be safe, effective, patient-centered, timely, efficient, and equitable. And that has begun the work that many have done uh, in the quality space, whether it's developing departments of quality, getting new degrees in quality and healthcare management and all the other things that have cascaded out. This was the beginning. And so I remind you that this is 2001, 2017, we're still at preventable harms being the third leading cause of death. So what's gone wrong? I don't know. I can't say for sure what's gone wrong, but I do know that when the work came out in the first five to six years, everybody was big on reports. New reports were popping up every time you turned around. These are some of the examples of the new reports of, yeah, yes, we figured it out. Maybe it's an environment of care issue. Maybe it's a safety issue. Maybe it's our dreaded EMR issue, right? I mean, like, we'll just, we'll just start reporting on everything that we can report on. And all of these reports are great because they, they help to start the conversation and they help to start move things forward. But they didn't all, like, get at sort of that nitty-gritty issue of what are we actually doing? And I think that that may be the reason why we're still terrible at it, is that we have, we're looking a little too broadly at things like, oh, well, if we have enough algorithms in the EMR and just follow that and have the computer put it together, then we're, going to, we're always going to do it right and we're never going to have an error. And I think that that doesn't take into consideration humans.
because humans get tired of doing the same thing over and over again. And until we explain why things are important to do it and really own it, I do believe that we will continuously have these preventable errors as a problem. But if you are very interested in any one of these early reports, these are hyperlinks that I'm, I can share this with you if you want, and you can just click them and keep going. But the other thing that I found out in doing more of this work is nobody cared about end-of-life care. All these were reports that focused significantly on the stuff that you would assume was care around healthcare models that deliver things that patients will survive from and leave the hospital. But we forgot this entire bucket of care that we provide that also needs some assistance. And I don't know, again, the cynic in me says, well, is it because they die anyway? So do we count it or not count it? Um, but there is a huge element of what we do related to end-of-life care that should also be paid attention to. We should create healthcare delivery models that provide good end-of-life care. We should know what that looks like. And we should try really hard to get to that point where we can express how wonderful we do end-of-life care. Problem is, is that requires us to start using the dreaded D word, right? We have a really hard time saying death and dying in medicine. We just do. And in pediatrics, it's worse. 17 years in adult medicine, I can tell you, it's super easy to get people to go, or my adult colleagues, sorry, your 99-year-old grandmother is dying. That, some, that, that flows. There's no issues with that. We understand the grief associated with that. We can do it. We have, we have bigger problems when somebody goes, no, absolutely not. My 99-year-old grandmother can't die. She needs to live to be 110. That doesn't, in our minds, work. Doesn't fit. So we go, no, we're actually fine with the 99-year-old dying. So we're just going to not do all the things you're asking us to do because that's ridiculous. Much more difficult to say, I'm sorry, your nine-year-old daughter is dying, right? That just kind of hits us in our core. It messes with our minds. <laughs> it just doesn't flow. Can't, it's not as easy a conversation. We don't quite know how to say it. Even if we know the reality of it's happening, it still gets at this, like, if I say the D word, I'm opening up some Pandora's box of just disaster that everything from here on out is going to go wrong. So I have a really hard time saying to a family of the nine-year-old, your nine-year-old is dying. We'll come up with all kinds of great other words. We'll dance around it in a multitude of ways. But it's human nature. I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm just saying that it's something we have to fight against because... The, the family of the 99-year-old who we easily say, your grandmother is dying, they start their grieving process. They start moving through what they have to move through, and they accept that reality, and that's more of a gift to them. The family of the 9-year-old where we can't get it out gets dragged along for much longer time, still doesn't get the opportunity to start their grieving process until we finally either get there or the child dies, and then there's a lot that goes with, is it unexpected for them? Was there a belief, or did some random clinician come in and be like, nope, we can save them, and then it doesn't happen? I mean, there's so much that goes with adding this extra time on the 9-year-old side that we don't ha have happen usually on the 99-year-old side. So we have to start thinking about it and having conversations about it because... Silence is bad. 
if we start talking about, we don't start talking about death and dying in a manner that's respectful, then we create environments of sometimes false hope, which is also very hurtful. We don't allow death to be considered a natural part of life, which we all know it is. And it, it starts to create environments of mistrust because we're the professionals who are supposed to deal with this every day. And if we don't have the ability to bring this up when it needs to be brought up, we can't expect our families to feel comfortable uh, in their own skin with dealing with death and dying. And as sad as it is, children do die. Everybody in their practice has seen this happen. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a thing. And keeping parents in the dark is just not fair. So we have to learn how to have better conversations. As soon as we know, parents should know. And I think that's part of the hardest thing is the as soon as we know, parents should know. Because, again, just in our DNA, it's really difficult to get to that point. We feel like the death of a, of a child especially is a bigger failure than the death of an adult. I still haven't figured out why I'm going to one day get with my psych colleagues and sit there and talk about the psyche of how we manage these deaths and how why we feel that anybody below the age of say 65 is considered a failure when they die but above that it's like oh well you know they were 70. <laughs> For those above 65 I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry I'll just my mother would be like how dare you. <laughs> but it's true. So there's something just in us that just feels like, eh, that's 70. It was a good life. Yeah, I mean, 70 years, that's a lot of time. But anything below the 65 mark, it's a tragedy. And somehow it's a tragedy that maybe we could have avoided. So we kind of take it on and we think it through and we work really hard in our heads to say what went wrong. Even when we know logically that this is just either the nature of the disease or this was the genetic illness, and it, whatever it is, it still doesn't matter. We still fight hard. And anybody in here on oncologist? No oncologist? Good, so I can make fun of them. <laughs> yeah, our, our oncologist, and then in the adult world, it's the nephrologist, right? Any nephrologist around? Right? So they, they, have a, they have a lot of really good rescue fantasies <laughs> um, for, for some of the diseases that they, they fight. And, it, and it's true. In the pediatric oncology world, right, there's not a lot of people who die. So they have good reason to feel like they can save all of them because usually they don't. But the ones that do... It is a terrible thing because in their minds they feel like they've missed something or there's something wrong. So they keep offering and offering and offering. And when this kid is on fifth line of chemo and has gone through seven different um, research protocols and it's still not working, st they still don't have the ability to say, I think now is the time to talk about the dying process. They still just want to offer one more thing. I had a great picture that a ment my old mentor had, and I have to find the talk that I had it in for on the nephrology adult side, <laughs> because it was a nephrologist with a stethoscope over a, a burial mound, um, and with the stethoscope on the burial mound and dialysis machine going into the ground, <laughs> and there was a guy, like the, the undertaker was standing over the dock and was like, Dr. Smith, I think you can let him go now. <laughs> Right? And so that, that was one of those dings on nephrology in, in the adult world because they, they often do always say, yeah, well, we can dialyze. That's always just a thing.
and they never not say, well, we shouldn't dialyze because it's something we can do. So we need to start being better at talking about death instead of just a figuring out ways around it because it is real and it is part of life and it really matters. Having these conversations and having them early are very, very, very important to the health and well-being of the people who are left behind. And we tend to forget that sometimes. Not only do we forget it for the sake of the people who are left behind, but we also forget it for the sake of the patients who are in the dying process themselves. We haven't done a good job of figuring out the dying process. We haven't really diagnosed it well. It's one of those things where you know when people are actively dying. Like that we can kind of be like, yep, this, this is coming really soon. You know when people will eventually die at the beginning when we hit diagnosis, right? So they've got stage four something or other. That one's one of those, yes, this is a path that's coming. But that middle ground in between those two, we haven't really figured out at what point can we go and now we've reached, quote, dying. And that's really difficult because for everybody it varies. We also don't have really good data to be able to say we know exactly how long someone's going to live. We can give good guesses. And if we have guesses, does that mean that we're now in the dying process? The hospice question, right, is as close as we've gotten to a good guess. Would you be surprised if this patient was alive in six months? Would you be surprised if this patient was alive in 12 months? That's as good as a guess as we can get. And as a result of that, we feel insecure. We're very good at being able to go through algorithms and say, based off of our professional medical experience, X. But when we get to this sort of soft data of, oh, well, you could be, maybe this could happen, not quite sure, it gets really icky and uncomfortable. So we don't really like talking about the dying process. But as a, as a consequence of that, it makes it seem like the dying process doesn't matter, but what it, it does. And the silence around it is unacceptable because that hurts people more than it helps them. In the adult world, being able to have the time to get your affairs in order is huge. And most often, we don't think about it. There was a study that was done that asked most Americans where they would like to die. In their minds, if they thought about their mortality, where would they like to die? And 80% said at home, surrounded by loved ones, not in a hospital, no tubes, comfortable in their own bed. 80%. That's just not what happens. Our day-to-day, -day, almost 80% die in hospitals, in ICUs, with a lot of tubes. And if they're lucky to get out of the ICU, they die on the floor, and they're still in the hospital. They still never get back home. So if they're not given the opportunity to say things like, I don't want to die in the hospital, because we never gave them the chance, because we acted like dying doesn't matter until it's too late, then we're taking away their ability to be an autonomous agent and decide things for themselves that are hugely important. Because at the end of the day, they die alone. Regardless of who's around them, dying is a very individual process. And it doesn't matter if you're 90 or 9, you still have to face it alone. So we need to be able to start bringing these up in timely manners to give people, including the 9-year-old, the opportunity to engage in what is a very personal thing to them. So, what is that going to look like? Well, sorry if this causes anybody to have heart palpitations. <laughs> um, quality scorecards. We've created some great ones 
How many have all green on their scorecards? <laughs> Uh, these are these are terrible things. They, we love them, but they're terrible. Uh, but the point of them, right, is to help us to start to think about the, those measures that we can hold on to and say we're either doing a good job or we're doing a terrible job. How many do surgery? In here, anyone? Anybody does any surgery? No? Okay, good. I can pick on the surgeon. <laughs> it's always good, right? Surgeons are real sticklers about this because it, it, affects, their, it affects their bottom line. If that surgical mortality is higher than what is expected, they get dinged. That's not cool. So they will, they will fill these out, and they will make sure that they hit whatever the markers are to make all those little boxes green. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing better care. It just means that they're hitting boxes. And I think that we need to move from this sort of scorecard mentality of whether you know, I got an A or an A minus in class. So it has to move from that to really asking the question of whether I'm doing what's right for my patient. And that's why I have termed said ethics is quality and quality is ethics. Because when you are doing what's best for your patient, that's where good quality care is. It doesn't matter if it hits a box. What matters is the experience of the patient and their family and the care that we're providing them. And if we see each one of them as their own little entity and provide the best care we can for them, then we'll hit our metrics. We won't do things that will hurt them. We won't disrespect them. We will keep them safe. We will be efficient. We won't order things that are unnecessary. If we start focusing on what they actually need and providing only the ethically appropriate options, these hopefully will go away. That's, that's my goal, is to get rid of those. Uh, so I started talking about that, and as a result, I got uh, invited to speak at the NCQA Quality Talks. And this is where I think Tim saw this talk. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, you don't have to, but I have like this need to have YouTube hits, because <laughs> I don't think I'll ever get another YouTube hit, right? So they, <laughs> it's like every... Every hundred hits, I, I say I'm going to buy myself something nice. Um, and my husband is like, at what point will we stop? The, and I'm like, not until I'm done, until the flat lines, right? So, um, but that's the link to, to go see it. But I, so I was invited to speak, and the reason why I was invited to speak was um, because a, a colleague of mine who was at MedStar, who moved to NCQA, uh, told his boss, well, you know, I've heard her speak about this issue, and this is a hot topic, and nobody's ever talked about it. So let's let's ask if she'll come. And I came, and I uh, one of the things that was really cool about it is they taught you how to do TED style talks, right? Because it was done TED style, and it was really hard to do a TED style talk. <laughs> like the the rules for doing a TED style talk are amazing, and I never realized that I thought it was just people on stage talking, but apparently not. There's all these like requirements that you have to go through. But the biggest thing that you have to do is you got to come up with like three main hits that people are going to remember. Something that's shocking and provocative. And you got to get three of them. And I'm not used to writing talks early. I'm just not. I was just telling Kathy last night, I'm like, I've read it. I, I wrote this talk like last week. And then I hadn't read it because I've been traveling. So I was like, I'm gonna, I'm probably not gonna say anything that's on my notes. And I legit haven't said anything on my notes so far. But I know in my head what I'm trying to say. So I don't really write speeches. I just, I, I know concepts. And in this one, I had to pre write and memorize. Yeah, terrible, terrible. And I was shocked. So it was like an October talk. 
And I got an email in June uh, wanting to set up my time with the professional speechwriters because they give you professional speechwriters to help you do this. And I was like, I don't understand what you're talking about. Why? I mean, do you know how many things I have between June and October? There's no way my brain's going to think about an October talk when I've got like seven between that and now. Nope, not a thing. But I had to schedule my time. So I scheduled my first 45 minutes. And <laughs> the speechwriter said, so what do you have for me? And I said, nothing. What do you have for me? Because, I mean, like, this is what you're supposed to tell me what I'm supposed to write? I don't write things early. What are you asking me to do? My brain won't process that. And he's like, okay. <laughs> so we're going to end the session because you only get X amount of time with the, spe with the speech writer. So he's like, we're not going to waste your speech writing tutorial time. But I need you to just make sure you do these things so the next time we meet, you have some stuff. And I was like, okay. So he gave me the list of the things to do. So by the time that we had our next session, I had to practice my speech. And then he tweaked it. And then I practiced again. So I had three hits. And by the third time, he was like, you're good. And it was right before the talk. Um, still really creepy walking around memorizing <laughs> and, and, and doing a speech from memory like that. But the three things that I hit that... Uh, were the were the the big highlight points is I started it off by saying, "Please let me die before I need a doctor," and that is a quote from my mentor. And he he I, I told the other story last night. He he had that. He was able to have that successful death. If somebody would call a death successful, that was what he had. And for many years, that was the one thing. He was a retired oncologist. He said, "Please let me die before I need a doctor," because if I need a doctor. That starts taking me down a path of a lot of things being done to me, a lot of visits in and out of hospitals, a lot of just slow trajectory downwards, stays in ICUs, being poked and prodded, losing control, all these things that are happening as a result of a prolongated dying process. And when we talk about quality and care, that hits really hard when you're thinking about all these multitude of visits and how many opportunities people have to screw it up. So he's like, just, just let me die without a doctor. Never want to have to see one. And he did. He was 87 years old, had a great week at work, went home, had a weekend with his wife. They went to their favorite hotel in downtown DC. They saw the opera. They did all these wonderful things, had dinner on Sunday night together, called all five of his kids, talked to grandkids, just had a nice evening, went up to his office to do some work, and had a massive cardiac event. Ended up in the ICU because his wife called 911, got, him, got the paramedics, they resuscitated a little bit, got him down to Georgetown Hospital in the ICU. They called me between getting to the hospital, his family calling me, and me getting to the hospital, I'd say it's about 45 minutes in that whole time frame. I was walking in, and the family was walking out, and I said, what happened? And they were like, oh, he's gone. And he's like, well, I, you just called me. And they said, yeah, when we got to the unit, the intending, the fellow, and the resident were all his students. And they saw him, and they were like, oh, no, we're done. We're done. That's it. We're done. Jack told us a long time ago <laughs> he doesn't want any of this. And so they did. They, they were all able to show up as a family. They gave him hugs and kisses, and that was it. So he didn't get to have to deal with the long, prolongated process of dying. He got the dream. And the please let me die before I need a doctor is really what people want. The problem, though, is that when you get into pediatrics, they haven't thought about that yet. 
right? Because this is an early death. This is this is one of those shockers to the system that you're just like, wait, this is not supposed to happen. There's supposed to be people who have had long times to think about this and understand what it means to have to go to the doctor multiple times and to sort of watch yourself get weaker and start to failing. Like that's different. And peds, these are aspirations, right? All these little children walking around, they are, to quote Whitney Houston, they are our future, right? They make us feel like there's good that's going to happen eventually. There are intentions and all the things that we put into them. My three-nager right now, right? And I look at him and I'm like, oh, God, you're going to take care of me, right? <laughs> like, like I'm putting all this into you now so that when I get old, you're going to be that good son that takes care of his mother. <laughs> and that, that's my goal is to build you up to be a good human. So anything that derails that is too much of a blow for us to think through what a good dying process is for peds. But we still have to. And we have to for their own sake. And then the other thing that I said, which is, which caused a lot of drama, was I want to see one of these. There is no place where you can go and find out where is the best hospital to go when you're dying. We don't, we don't do that. We don't advertise. We got you covered if you're dying. <laughs> they laughed at when I said it at NCQA. I'm like, I don't understand. I mean, I would, I would love that. I would love to know, right, if I'm dying, where to go for people to take care of me and, like, for real take care of me, not figure out ways to stop my dying process, which may not be taking care of me. It actually may be hurting me more but to really take care of me. And so why don't we? Why don't we decide where those hospitals are and create a U.S. News and World Reports for it? We've got a U.S. News and World Reports for neurology and cancer centers, cardiac places. What is Dartmouth's big thing that they, is it cancer? Yeah, it's a big, right? I mean, like we, we promote all these things about we will cure you and we will save your life. Another thing that I said is lives aren't saved. We need to stop saying that. Lives are not saved. Death is just delayed because everybody still dies. But we don't pay any attention to the fact that when you're in that process, now where do I go? Do I, do I go to Dartmouth? But if I'm not dying of cancer, why would I go to Dartmouth? If I'm dying from something else, where am I supposed to go? So we should. We should try and figure out where that hospital is, or at least make our hospitals feel like that. I mean, even if we don't get banners to put out front, which I would like, I would like a banner that just hangs and says, we take all of you dying, come here. <laughs> when you're facing this event, I could totally see the commercial. The, um, the, our, our media people don't like it when I say that. But, uh, uh, I, and in pediatric hospitals, right, we have the worst language. We have miracle-based language, right? And it's always... It's always hard for parents who are facing their child dying and then they see all the pictures of the successes. One of the biggest interventions that I'm starting at my hospital is to get rid of, we have this hall of fame walking into the NICU. And the idea, which I understand the idea, was to, excuse me, show our successes. And so there's this massive hall of all the successful patients. But that's the only way you can get into the NICU. And the family room to have conversations is on the other side of that hall. So we have parents walking through these halls of successes, 
to go sit in a room with me as I talk about the fact that their child's never going to be on that wall. And then they have to go back through after hearing their child's never going to be on that wall. This wall of these smiling kids that they show them when they were in NICU and now they show them like in college. I mean, they have, you know, those kinds of pictures. To go back to a room where it seems like it's a personal failure on them because whatever, they didn't do enough for their kid to make it to the wall. But that's sort of standard children hospital mentalities of let's show our successes, let's show our, our, our miracle kids. We, we have like miracle day. <laughs> it was all the ones that were the one percenters that we made it through and we celebrate that because we want to highlight the fact that we did a good job. But that hurts deep for the parents that don't get to have that joy. And we never think about that because what we think about is if we talk about it, we're somehow taking away their hope. And that managing hope is somehow our job. And it's not. Our job is to provide the best care that we can. It's not to manage people's hope. Because again, at the end of the day, <laughs> it's, just, it's just true. So, so how do we move forward? Well, we're all on this road to become centers of excellence, right? Is that, is that, is that one of the topics? Everybody wants to become a center for excellence. Everybody wants to be a high, reliable organization. How do we get there, and what do we need to do to be able to get there, especially in the pediatric world? One of the important things that we have to do, though, is start to try to figure out what do we measure. And my third big bucket thing that I put up in the NCQA talks was just some ideas of measuring how well we do end-of-life care that were generic. And so now that I'm in a pediatric hospital, I've tweaked them and changed them a little bit to figure out more of what it would look like to measure quality of end-of-life care in a pediatric world versus measure quality of end-of-life care in adult world. And this is the document that I created for our peds world. There is a version of this for the adult world. And a colleague of mine at UVA is doing a study with me to validate both these. So we're, I'm doing the children's side, he's doing the adult side, um, to see if we can use existing technology, right? Because if you, getting the EMR to change, it's like an act of God. And then getting people to change with the new EMR change is another act of God. And that's just too many acts to, to have happen to be realistic. So wondering if we can find this data already and start figuring out our baseline. And if we can figure out our baseline, then maybe we can start putting into play some quality metrics to, and some action plans to improve things. Some of them are very t similar from both the, the different versions, the adult version versus the pediatric versions. But in the peds world, we have to account for this element of parents that we don't account for in the adult world. And I talked a little bit about this last night. If I don't understand why a 70-year-old mom with a 50-year-old kid is still not a mom, at the same way that we think of a 20-year-old mom with a 5-year-old kid, that this is still her child. doesn't really matter, right? But in our minds, it, it somehow changes. So in the adult world, we allow for people to make bad decisions a lot easier than we do in the pediatric worlds. We're a little more protective if they are under the age of 18. Uh, so many of these cross over. And the idea was to say, let's just take a look at what we do already and see if what we do already is good enough. Do we offer things that make sense? Like, you see, 
if I can uh, read this a little better. Um, so this right here, this one was the one that most people thought, oh, I never even thought about that. An end-of-life care counselor. Has it, do you all have anything that fits that bucket? Someone whose entire point is to talk to families or patients when we know that they are terminal? Is it social work or, I mean, can we, chaplains, do we kind of mesh it together into another job category, palliative care? Palliative care does it mostly, yeah. Um, and one of my best friends who is the head of the palliative care department at my old hospital at MedStar uh, said, you know, I get that that's sort of part of my job, but I would really like to have somebody else do that. <laughs> Me? Right? Because he focuses a lot on symptom management. He focuses a lot on quality of life. He pays attention to all these additional buckets. He's like, but just to sit down and talk only about end-of-life care as what are your wishes and goals? He says, yeah, I can do it. I feel like it's now part of my job to do because nobody else wants to do it. But it'd be great if I had a partner who could do that in conjunction with all the medicine that I have to do because I have to manage the medicine of what those goals are like as well as manage the primary physician's expectations of what those goals are like, right? So he, he feels like it would be great to have a, a person to hand that part off to. And in the pediatric world, many places don't have pediatric palliative care. Many places, the social worker tries as best as they can. And then we all know the dynamics of the hierarchy of medicine. It's really difficult oftentimes for those who fall lower on the totem pole or don't have to be called doctor when they walk in the room to provide that kind of information to the attending and say, this family actually doesn't want that, uh, and challenge the attending's authority. It's always easier to have it to kind of be a peer-to-peer -peer conversation. So end-of-life care counselors offering end-of-life care services, asking questions like, where do you want to die? A seven-year-old can tell you that. Do you all have child life? Mm -hmm. child, I love my child life people. Child life tells me, we can get a three-year-old to explain that to you. We never give them the chance, but we can do it. So why not use the people that we have to be able to have these conversations? We oftentimes don't want to bring up death around children because we feel like that will scare them. When what I've seen in my limited experience of very cognizant children is that they already know. Not only do they know, they're waiting for the adults to, to expect and to say it, to validate them. We've had many times where parents are like, don't tell my child who is dying of cancer that they're dying. And the nurse goes in the room and the kid says, I know I'm dying. And then the nurse is like, what am I supposed to say? Do I say yes? Do I say no? causes a lot of internal distress because they're not quite sure if they have to listen to what the parents say or if they can just treat the child as a normal human and engage in a conversation. The, the highest turnover in our hospital is in the pediatric intensive care, and a lot of that is because they can't manage this conflict between the, the dying child and parents who aren't able to accept that. So what's been done? This document was created in Costa Rica. Now, Costa Rica is great for a lot of things. Uh, vacation. They have like, <laughs> they have these tree, you should Google it. They have these tree houses that you can vacation in Costa Rica. It's absolutely amazing. I've never done it. It's on my bucket list. <laughs> but they also created this.
And this is legit rights, like government-sanctioned rights that they give to children who are dying. The UNESCO group in Costa Rica, the National Hospice Organization, and the government got together and said, kids should be allowed to engage in conversations about their dying. And so they created this. And I highlighted a few because these are the few that I think are the easiest ones to see how they make sense. And we can easily translate these to the United States. There's some that don't cross over. I get it. But there are many that do. So why not engage? Why is that a difficult conversation to have? After finding this document, I gave a talk at American College of Chess Physicians um, where I, I highlighted this. The, I came back to my institution and I said, you know, I said it to the crowd, so why not do it? Right? I mean, if I said, why not do this, the question comes back to me, why not do this? So we did. We created our version version of this. Now, of course, the difference is, is that these are not legally sanctioned. because <laughs> The government has not decided to embrace our uh, thoughts on what's good care. But um, in our institution, what we've decided to say is we're going to give you back your voice and we're going to ask you to engage and we're going to promise you that we're going to try and treat you as your own individual entity as best we can. There are things that obviously we can't do because of laws, but that doesn't mean we can't have a conversation about it. Bratty teenagers who just don't want to engage, who can say things like, well, I don't want my mom in my room today because we ask who do you want to be around when we have these conversations, they can say that. That doesn't necessarily mean it will happen, but we will listen and say we understand What's going on? Are you just angry at mom? But mom has to make decisions, so she needs to hear it. And maybe we have two different conversations. Maybe we talk to you, and then we talk to mom right after. We can come up with ways to respect their voices in a manner that gives them back their autonomy. Children always, we take it away. Because for whatever reason, that magic number of 18 means that they get it. Remembering what I was like as an 18-year-old, <laughs> it's not true, right? It's arbitrary. There's, all over the world, people have different understandings of what it means to be an adult. But we've chose 18, so that doesn't necessarily mean that we got it right. I mean, the brain doesn't fully get done until, what, 26 or something like that? So why isn't it 26? Military, that's why. Um, so, um, actually, just as a quick sidebar, I did hear this. Uh, one of a pediatric neurologist friend of mine said that there's actually truth to the reason why they chose 18 for the military, because at 18, you still have enough of that I am immortal, and I, <laughs> I will go and run towards guns, right? You still have that I won't ever get killed mentality, but just enough of adultness to be able to listen and take orders and pay attention to structure. So it's this like perfect balance of crazy and stable, <laughs> which is the, what you want in the military, right? That's why aircraft fighters, aircraft, the, the people who work the aircraft liners are mostly 18 to 21, and they do a great job. They're the, they're the model of safety because they can take the orders and they can do it, but they like being in the battle, and they have that immortality. So that's why we chose 18. It's <laughs> like, okay. But so if you see, this is a series of, what I can versus what we will, right? So they can ask all these things, which is really difficult to see. And this is, this is the marketing prototype, which is why I don't have like the real one because we're still 
finalizing it. And I worked with our family advisory council to put this together, so the parents advisory council, depending on what you call it, as well as our youth advisory council. And the, there is a section specifically dedicated down here, which you can't really see, to if I'm facing the end of my life. And people were all nervous about whether or not we should have that. And it was like, of course you should have that. Why wouldn't we? Well, they were excited about the idea of promising that we're going to give you back your voice, right? The original name of this document was The Voice of the Most Amazing, because that's our slogan, right? Hospital for the Most Amazing. So it was supposed to be The Voice of the Most Amazing, but then marketing got a hold of it and decided that was not going to work for them. So they changed it and rebranded and did all those stuff, and now it's a kid-first document, because that's our number one value is kids first. So I was like, all right, fine. But the people who worked the hardest to ensure that the end of life stuff was in there, because the parents were a little skittish, was the youth advisory group. These little 12-year-olds, who some of them are down to seven, who had lived through potential end-of-life scenarios, who had made it out, were like, absolutely I want to be able to involve my, like, tell my mom, I don't want that anymore. Or have a conversation with my doctor about how I feel, and I don't want to do this drug anymore. So we pushed back because the kids pushed us to push back, uh, and we got it in. It still makes our clinicians a little stressed out. I'm doing a grand rounds about it, and I had to create, legit, I had to create a how-to document to go with this because everybody is worried about <laughs> presenting this, and the attendings going, I have to talk to the kids now? <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to have this wonderful grand rounds of saying, you actually still do talk to the kids already. We're not telling you that you don't. What we're telling you is that you should engage them a little more during times when you feel like they should not be engaged because you're being protective or you're letting their parents be super protective and you're worried that if you go around that, somehow you're hurting the kid. So the hope is that this will be better. And then the last thing that the youth advisory did was they said, some days I don't want to talk. So on those days, can I have a mechanism to be able to ask my questions without having to talk? Could I get like a little book that I could write it in? I'm like, well, that's pretty realistic, sure. So we, um, we're the home of Target. It's our claim to fame. And so we asked Target, because they were trying to figure out a donation thing for children's hospitals. I mean, a, you know, in adult medicine, we never get people caring about wanting to give us stuff. In peds, they're always trying to give us stuff. So Target had, I had called our foundation and was like, what do you guys want so you could be on our list of donors this year, donations this year? And so we had asked if we could get little journals to go in the rooms of all the kiddos that are able to engage in conversation uh, for them to have. And it didn't matter whether they were facing it in their life or not, but they could have it, they could draw at it, they could write questions in it. And we had uh, talked to our nurses and our nurses agreed to every day just check the journal just to see if there's a question that the kid wrote in that they would like to have an answer to. So Target was like, absolutely. They gave us about 400 to get started uh, and they didn't just give us journals. They gave us these little like care packages that had all this other stuff in it. And these little packages are going in all the, the kids' rooms. And hopefully, with this little pilot of the, of the journal, if everybody loves it, then Target said they'll, they'll agree to just continue to supply us. So we're rolling this out. And along with the how-to guide, which includes things like, 
if they say things like, God, call spiritual care. <laughs> I mean, that, that is the level of like how-to that we had to put in there because we, we, we talked to many clinicians who started to get really anxious about, well, how do I respond to this and how do I respond to that? And the answer is, you have resources. Call them. So just these are the people to call. If you don't know how to have this conversation, talk to Child Life. This is their number, right? So we, we put all of it in a nice little pretty guy that's going to all be rolled out. This is going to go everywhere in our hospital. Our administration has committed to this being what we promise our kids as well as their parents. And we promised that we were going to stop things like lying to children just because the parents asked. That one was a difficult one because it, especially in our oncology group, they're oftentimes asked never to tell their ch the child that they've got cancer. And many in the practice have said that's okay. So they will lie to the children. We have said that's not okay. And the administration has agreed. So we're, there's a lot of cultural change that's going to have to happen. I may have to come back and tell you how well this has been accepted. But for right now, we're going for it. Uh, and, and then, of course, one day I may be right about it if I have time. <laughs> but but this, is, this is the point of making these conversations normalized. We, if we don't start normalizing the concept of dying, and we can't start measuring whether or not we're doing a good job at it. And it's not like it's something that only happens every once in a while. This is, we know, is things that go on every single day. So we need to do better because now we know better, to quote Maya Angelou. And then I'll just, oh, God, I'm in here, sorry. <laughs> I didn't realize the time. Uh, this is a wonderful quote from Dwight D. Eisenhower about the tragedy of losing a child. And I think this is where our problem is, right? We believe that this tragedy keeps us from doing what we're supposed to do, but I don't think so. I think that it is a reality whether we do our job or not, but it just makes that road easier to travel for the families that are left with living through this tragedy if we provide for them the best care that we can while they're going through it. Because it's not our child. Even though we feel responsible, we don't have to live with it every day at the same level that the parents do. So we need to be really clear about taking care of them as they walk this journey, but taking care of their child even more. Because at the end of the day, it is their tragedy, and we have to, they have to remember that we cared for them as the best that we could through their tragedy. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Oh, questions, yes. Yes, I am. Yes. Um, so I, I'm a pediatric intensivist, and you can go ahead and malign me right here while I'm <laughs> um, So we sometimes have to do a very accelerated version of this. Right? Mm -hmm. So you don't have a kid who comes in with a diagnosis of a chronic illness that's going to end their life prematurely. It's something that happens very suddenly. So right. Have you worked on developing some skills or some roadmaps for, I mean, I, I feel like we, we sort of, we trained the, in the old fashioned apprenticeship way. So I learned about talking about death and dying from my critical care mentors and from actually from my oncology mentors, because actually I think she was very good about accepting death, but, um, but it's more of an apprenticeship and not a, not a formal training. Yeah. Yes, um, <laughs> the accelerated version, yes. Uh, the accelerated version is really hard for everybody because it's a shock, right? And so t tragedies and shock together cause people to get really anxious in how to engage. 
but it, it's a it's a partnership. So what I try and teach my intensivist is you can slow it down some by just saying we can reconvene in 24 hours and I will give you all the information that I know of what this looks like. And in that 24 hours, other things could occur. They could crash quickly. We could stabilize them or they could show improvement, right? Those are the three paths that we've got in this potentially very critical 24 hours. And if they crash quickly, we'll let you know immediately. Hopefully they'll still be there. Oftentimes we try to send ours to the like Ronald McDonald house that's, in, that's on site to just kind of get some food and rest and then come back. Um, but if, if they can't, and then we just say, you need to stay here because we're not sure what's going to happen. If they stabilize, then we can reassess what's going on. If they start to get better, then we'll have that conversation. But to slow it down in a sense that we just let them know that we don't know. It could be something going really fast, or it could be something that we can get a handle on. And it's okay to say to families, this is critical, but we still don't know what we're dealing with. And do you guys have a 24-hour palliative care on call? So yes. Yes, we do. But they're not necessarily in-house. They'll, they'll manage things over the phone initially. Uh, and then if they have to come in, they'll come in. Um, thank you so much, Nika. That was fantastic. Um, before uh, we depart, just to let you know that we are having a new conference with our residents this afternoon. Um, Dr. Cedarstrom and Dr. White are going to lead our residents in a discussion about race and bi uh, bias and race in medicine. Um, so that should be a lot of fun. We're in a funny conference room in the radiation oncology conference room on the second floor of the Rubin building. So if people are interested in coming, please please join us. It should be a great conversation. I think it's hilarious you said that should be a lot of fun. I know. I was totally about to say that. I was totally going to say that. I was like, it's fun. They will make it fun. There you go. Not necessarily a fun topic, but a fun experience. <laughs> Mm -hmm. when we start. I love that document from Costa Rica about the rights of a sick child. But when we start using rights language yes. for children, that makes those of us as parents, especially Stressful. in the United States, a yes. little bit stressed. Because yes. in the U.S. in particular, we give a lot of rights to parents to yes. make decisions about their children and raise them the way they think they should be raised regardless. Right. And I'm wondering if you can talk to that. Yes. Uh, so... And, and that was the number one thing that everybody pounced on as soon as I brought this back was, we can't give rights, only the government gives rights. If we start using rights language, then everybody's going to freak out because parents have the rights. And that was the other reason why we changed it from a rights document to what we promise we will do, right? So it's more of a, a vow instead of legally bestowed upon you rights. Uh, and then the conversation with parents goes along with that. Because parents will say, well, I have the right to decide what to do for my child. Yes, you do in this particular space. But that does not preclude us from also having the right to decide if we want to talk to your child about things, right? So because the, the argument is that parents' rights trumps everybody else's rights. And that's not necessarily true. Physicians and nurses and all the staff, they have their own autonomy as well and, are not, and cannot be forced to do things they believe are immoral or impractical or against medical opinion and all these other things that parents sometimes ask for. That's, that's just not how the rights work. And parental rights aren't really the rights that we give them. Those are actually just nice privileges that we offer. If you actually read the law about what parents have the right to decide, it's a lot smaller than what we assume. We just kind of give them the blanket of everything related to your child. But it's not true. They can't decide that they're not going to school. 
right? They have to go to school to a certain age. We will step in and say, you can't decide not to give them this chemo treatment if the chances of the child living is 90%. It's not true. I don't care how you want to raise your kid. We will step in and be able to do that. So it's the, under the same heading of we will entertain what you'd like in the sense of we want to have this conversation with you. We're never going to go tell you we're, we're just going to do this against your wishes and just leave it that way. We will have a conversation about why this is what this institution feels like. And they have the right to say, well, I don't agree with those values. I'm going to go someplace else. So, um, oh, yes. Oh, I just, hi. Just on that note, um, do you mind putting up the slide again so we can find the link? Because it doesn't come up anymore. Sure. So I'm just going to give a shout out to our Dartmouth Pediatric Residency Twitter feed. Yay, Twitter feed. Can you see it? Link is at that Twitter feed, Dartmouth Residency, uh, and our tweet in the back. Tweet Can can you tag me? I never. I, oh. <laughs> so, so look that up this morning. I never get tweeted. I don't know how to tweet. Yes. It's not a YouTube hit. No, it's not a YouTube. But maybe, maybe I'll get a YouTube hit. Anyway, so so follow that this morning, noon, second floor, Ruben, three floors down from the office's cancer center. Thank you, everybody.